0: Welcome to the Lisa Fisher Said Podcast. I'm Lisa Fisher, a longtime broadcaster and journalist in Arkansas, who's been in front of a microphone or a camera since the 1980s. I think of myself as the queen of Arkansas media. For this episode, I've got someone who soared to fame when she did a TED Talk on intermittent fasting in 2019. She's Cynthia Thurlow, and her latest book drops the day this podcast drops. It's called Intermittent Fasting Transformation, and the link is in the show notes. You'll get to meet this book author, mom of two boys, and nurse practitioner right after this. I want you to put on your social media checklist to check the YouTube page for Ralston Family Farms kind of once a month or so. I I love what they're doing with their social media. One thing, I love recipes when I can see them actually prepare it, see what they're doing. Rather than reading all the, you know, the back history on something, I'll just get right to it. They do that at Ralston Family Farms on their YouTube. But also, kind of each month, they celebrate different things. In February, obviously, it was Love Month. In March, it will be Heritage Month. And so, what they're doing is combining the heritages of uh, the Irish descendants along with Arkansas. Ireland is known as the land of 40 shades of green. Arkansas is known as the natural state. So, they're combining the two, Arkansas and Ireland. Um, for a march 17th obviously st patrick's day event and we're cooking because i'm a part of this bangers and golden grits recipe that they've whipped up it is delicious it's shot at my home and i think you're really going to enjoy it so yeah, link is in the show notes but definitely put that down of things to do to check out the youtube page for ralston family farms
1: she won most talkative in high school, and she has been running her mouth ever since. Welcome to the Lisa Fisher Said Podcast with your host, Lisa Fisher.
0: Okay, Cynthia, I was kind of doing the math on this. You uh, being a TED Talk speaker, which is how you catapulted to fame, would be the equivalent if I won Jeopardy! Like, I, I don't know any other TED Talk speakers, and I don't know anyone who, who else who has won Jeopardy. So you're up there in the upper echelons of people on the planet. How did you get that coveted role of speaking at being a TED Talk speaker?
1: Well, I mean I think the thing that's oftentimes surprising is that I'm an introvert and in 2018 I said to my husband, you know, I'm an entrepreneur now. I'm no longer, you know, seeing patients in the hospital or the clinic. I want to do something to challenge myself. And and so I watched a, an individual who's done four, and I was really inspired because he then took that work and, and you know, created some charitable organizations to to help people build houses in Africa. And I felt I was taking inspired action. And so I connected with this individual and kind of started down that path. And the irony is, and I, I'm happy to admit this publicly, after 80 applications... 80, eight zero, <laughs> I was given the opportunity to speak in TEDx Toronto talking about perimenopause, which to me was like the most embarrassing topic ever because we just don't talk about or disclose what happens when we go through this process of reverse puberty, let alone menopause. And so, right around the time I accepted that talk in October of 2018, I was offered a second talk, ironically, in South Carolina. <clears throat> and since I was born in South Carolina and I have, you know, wonderful family and wonderful memories, I, I felt really drawn to doing the second talk. The irony is they don't allow you to do TED talk two TED talks about the same topic. And I remember looking at my husband one night in December of 2018 and I said, What do I know a lot about? And he's like, intermittent fasting that that is as much thought as I put into that topic, selecting that topic. And I, you know, went on the following March to do this talk and The greatest irony of all was that 27 days prior to that talk, I had gotten out of a 13 day hospitalization. And part of my kind of healing journey, you know, just the desire to leave the hospital, uh, first and foremost was to be with my children. And then secondly was to do this talk. And so I had no idea that it would go on to be so extraordinarily important on a lot of different levels it's almost like lightning in a bottle. I remind people all the time that there is nothing I could have done differently that would have had a, a different outcome. That I think that that was intuitively, if you're a spiritual person or, or not, um, the universe gives and the universe takes. And so on a lot of levels, I think there was a conscientious movement created that allowed for that talk to go on and, and really resonate. And I feel very, very grateful. But the simple answer is I'm an introvert. I wanted to challenge myself. And it was that was that was the intent that was set.
0: Okay. A lot of things to unpack with that. Number one, I've studied introverts and extroverts and ambiverts. Those are the people who, who swing both ways. Uh, because I, I'm kind of off the chart in the mm-hmm. other one, right? And of course, God has a sense of humor that I have introverted children. And of course, I married someone with more introverted tendencies so that we have balance. So I understand it. I respect it. People think that if you're an introvert, then you are over there in the corner. No, it just means you get energized by alone time and downtime. And I am energized by Carnegie Hall. I mean, that's just just the difference right there. So I totally could see how an introvert can do that because the best actors, All I'm in uh, radio TV personality, all the TV anchors I work with, they're all introverts. Because they looked into one little red light, and they read what was on the script. So I, I totally respect that. So I love that you did that for yourself. Number two, I didn't know there was an application process for the TED Talks.
1: It, it's it's an interesting because you have to do uh, an application and a video. And I just recall thinking, gosh, you know, I can get on TV and do a TV segment, and I can get on social media. But trying to commit something to memory... And then deliver it. You know, you had a two or three minute video that they expected you to have committed to memory. The laugh is on me because you then go on to do a TED talk that's significantly longer that you commit to memory. But to me, I think it was the start of fine tuning and developing a lot of different skills that you know you don't have as a clinician. You don't really you don't really learn those same skills. And and to me, it's so empowering to know that you can you know pivot and talk about different subjects and do it confidently and concisely. I think that's really The gift of a TED talk, if it's done well, and I certainly have seen lots of amazing TED talks, and then I've seen some really terrible ones. Right, and it can be a variety of factors. But being able to to effectively communicate a cohesive thought and narrative is is a gift, and it really it you know there are some people that I watch their TED talks and they're masterful, absolutely masterful. I'm like, wow, what a persuasive, thoughtful discussion.
0: Do you think that's the goal then in a TED Talk is to persuade someone's thinking from A to B?
1: Well, the, the, the one thing that I've come to find is that people that uh, support and, and go to TED Talks, they're, they're looking to, to consider alternative perspectives. They're open-minded. Uh, they're intellectually curious. And, and I would imagine, you know given my two experiences, when I was speaking with audience members, that was the consistent theme that I saw that these are individuals who probably are curious about a variety of topics and and come to those events just to be inspired to learn about something maybe they were already familiar with or a different perspective. The one thing that I've always appreciated, um, you know, I did a, a smaller venue in Toronto and then a larger one in South Carolina, was that I was really humbled by how incredibly talented, these normal everyday people were who got up on stage and really did such a beautiful job articulating what they were passionate about and did it in a way you know i think it was with truly pure intent they just really wanted to share an insightful thought or idea and inspire people to learn more or perhaps consider alternative perspectives you know on on a lot of levels i was a poli sci major the first time around and and for me back in the 90s. Uh, you know, this is back when we had vigorous debate. And, you know, I went to college outside of Washington, DC. And for me, part of my education was entertaining alternative perspectives. And then, you know, literally, we would agree to disagree if that was the direction we were headed in. And then we would go out and do something socially. And I think this is something that's really missing from the the common narrative that... Um, <laughs> yeah, for sure. for sure that we see like trying to explain to my teenagers that this is not always the way things were and how you know challenging it is as someone who's always been super intellectually curious and I'm always open to learning new perspectives and ideas that I think TEDx has really done a nice job of trying to stay current and also keep people you know continuing to kind of Flip the narrative, so it's not always predictable. There might be something unique or different um, in those talks, and and you know, for me, like I said, you know, given the, the current narrative that that's out there, and I'm trying to be very um, careful and conscientious I, I about what are. I'm referring to. I, I, I think we've lost that in many ways, and, oh, I, and, and for me, it's a beautiful thing to have a platform where people can you know share ideas that are important.
0: Gosh, I'm a longtime broadcaster, so I've never been uh, up against um, a paradigm that has to be something that has to you have to follow the letter of the law. I, I just it, it shocks me. And I left radio in 2018 just to, so I didn't have to get up at 345 anymore in the morning. And people have asked me, they go, how would you have managed during this? And I go, well, I wouldn't be there because I, I you know we, you you and I talked before we got on the air I say my mind, and so my mind doesn't follow things, the narrative, and nothing we're saying right now will be picked up by um the algorithms so, because mm-hmm. we're being so vague, but you you know what I'm I'm talking about. So it's um it's uh real journalism is kind of RIP is kind of died and just a lot of things in that uh, thinking process. Well, let's talk about you and so the second TED talk, the one that put you on the map that Jen Stevens um, definitely refers to and leaders in uh, the intermittent fasting field now she's a lay person obviously um you come from the science background you tell me about your health scare that happened before that and how is a woman like you because you're a nurse practitioner right Mm -hmm. so you you know you're smart you know what to do you know what goes on the human body what your human body turned on you Cynthia tell me about it
1: Well, the irony is, I have never been sick a day in my life. And uh, for the first time ever, I was able to accompany my husband on a business trip, Oboo, to Hawaii of all places. And when we got back, I thought I had food poisoning. And I'm just grateful that my symptoms didn't start until we had gotten home. Right. But coming from Hawaii back to the East Coast is quite a haul. Yes. And so initially, I was like, gosh, you know, I've got food poisoning. And, you know, I felt pretty bad. And I laid in bed the whole next day and I was like, hmm this isn't good. And then I started developing the worst abdominal pain I'd ever experienced, worse than labor pain. So if any woman is listening, you wow. understand how significant it was. And I told my husband, I was like, I think you need to take me to the ER. And flashback to, I was an ER nurse in inner city Baltimore. My All my experience as a nurse practitioner was in cardiology. So I'm used to sick people. right? And I said- I need to go to the hospital and initially because my I am a pretty healthy person my blood pressure wasn't bad I didn't have a temperature my pulse rate oh, wasn't too high. You didn't
0: have a temperature even. So you right would, and
1: so hmm. a lot of it has to do with the fact that I'm so fit. Um but so I showed up and they did labs and then all of a sudden things really started to move and I and I was communicating initially to a physician's assistant I was like, I'm very sick. I don't know what's wrong with me, but if you don't figure it out, I'm going to die. I just had this impending sense of doom. And all of a sudden, when my lab work came back, then the physician came in to see me and then everything started to move. I got a stat CAT scan. Um, you know, They called in a surgeon. What had happened was my appendix had ruptured. And it wasn't just the ruptured appendix. It was the entire length of my colon. Was so inflamed that they were fearful if they took me to surgery that I would lose my colon. And I remember saying to this female surgeon at eleven thirty at night, "Please do not take my colon." And she said, "You don't need your colon." I was like, "I need my colon. <laughs> we need so, all
0: of our parts except for an appendix." Right? Exactly. But we I, need was our like, parts. I don't
1: want to. I don't want to leave the hospital with a colostomy bag, which is what I would have left with. And so they said, "Well, we'll give you. We'll let you have a little bit of time, but you know, if you start to, you know, get worse, we're going to have to take you to surgery." And so that began this thirteen day hospitalization. And the whole first week, I don't remember a whole lot, except that I did a lot of vomiting, but I went on to develop a small bowel obstruction. Um, by day five, my surgeon was despondent because I was not getting better. I was running fevers. Wait, had
0: you had surgery then to remove the appendix?
1: No, no, I was too sick. And I had really you were too begged sick for them even do not that. to. If, if we wow. could quiet things down, I had multiple um, specialists, you know, infectious disease. I had interventional radiology coming to see me. As well as a hospitalist, and all trying to quiet things down so that I could potentially, you know, not have surgery urgently. Um, you know, I ended up with a central line. I ended up with uh, food administered in a bag because I could not eat. I developed abscesses. They had to put in drains to deal with those. I developed so a fistula. Th-
0: this wasn't inflammatory bowel disease then. It wasn't no, an IBD. No,
1: I just, what ends up happening is in response to the appendix rupturing, my body was trying to wall it off, but it was also ensuring that there was nothing else coming in oh, into my body. Like, I see. you know, it, it became this. You know, cascade of events that my body was making it very clear. We're ensuring you cannot and in- you cannot ingest any food whatsoever. I had a tube down my nose into my stomach, and I just remember probably five days in. One of my cousins, who is like a sister to me, and she's she's a physician. She came down and was at my bedside, and uh, they came in and wanted to give me IV nutrition in a bag, and and this is called TPN or total parenteral nutrition. It's all made of soy, and in my crazy mind. I looked at my cousin and I said, can they give me organic TPN? And she was like, what? I would ask (laughs) the same thing. Exactly. So she said, Cynthia, if you don't eat, you're going to die. Like, this is no joke. (laughs) Then there's that. Yeah. Yes. So I remember that was one lasting uh, memory of several. So they started the TPN. And you know, when I hit about a week into the hospitalization, my surgeon was feeling like, okay, maybe I can exhale a little bit. Maybe- Indeed, uh, you're going to make this through, you know, make it through the hospitalization. So I actually left the hospital with a, a drain in my uh, body. So I w- I left with a central line. I left with a drain because I had this fistula between my appendix and my cecum. I've heard that
0: is very painful.
1: Yeah, and so I, I left with this bag, and I left with IV antibiotics. And and here's the irony: five days before that second TED talk, I still had this drain in, and so I was oh, running wow. the idea of what am I going to do if I give this talk with this drain still in? And by some miracle, it had healed five days before, so they pulled it out. But I I think I'm probably the first person on record that did a TED talk with a ruptured appendix because I was too sick to intervene. They 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 allowed me to go six weeks. And then remove my appendix.
0: So you were on stage with a a ruptured appendix. And and I hate steroids and all that because what it does to your uh, gut health and all that. But you had to have steroids and you're pumped full of everything, right?
1: Yeah. Well, the the irony is um, I, I went home on IV antibiotics and antifungals and uh i actually didn't get steroids my body had wore, had kind of walled off the appendix to protect me and this is actually something your body does on its own uh but the the irony is when my surgeon went in 6 weeks after i was discharged from the hospital she took lots of photos but there were adhesions and she said there's not a question at all that you know right now it was quiet which was the best time to go in because you were not running a fever you were feeling better you were strong enough to go through the surgery which is that there's no question that at some point you would have had a problem again and then you might have developed peritonitis which is a you know a, a, an infection of the lining of the peritoneum right. which can be life threatening right. and so mm. um I recall after the surgery going in to see my surgeon and we I actually cried because I said I know you saved my life I know that you, you valued my opinion enough to let me ride it out for as long as I could without removing my appendix. And I have zero doubt that if it had been anyone else, I wouldn't be here right now. And I'm so grateful because for me, for anyone that's listening, I did that talk because I wanted to prove to my children that I was okay. Like my brain hadn't caught up with my body. I can't even watch that talk. I don't know how much I've ta- I've spoken about that publicly, wow. but it's so painful because when I was on that stage, I was 15 pounds lighter than I normally am. I'm usually a healthy weight. I was so thin. I know,
0: but you look like a really good proponent for intermittent fasting. <laughs>
1: you were really thin. <laughs> but it was one of those things when people make comments like she's too skinny. I'm like, well, you yeah. know, you're yeah. probably right. But yeah. Um, yeah, really just did that to show my boys that that I was okay, that uh, I was, my brain was okay.
0: Okay. So if we all come from, I, I feel like you do, the the functional medicine root of why we get sick so do you think you were burning the candle at both ends and then you did one thing it's it i think they call it the rain barrel effect that Mm -hmm. you know all of a sudden it's just too much and maybe that last piece of salmon and mango that you had in oahu was the very thing that tipped you over the edge
1: Well, I I honestly think that I probably picked up, um, well, I know that I picked up a parasite in Morocco. So my husband and I, September of 2018, had gone on a 15th anniversary trip and I had the worst food poisoning in my entire life. And so the working hypothesis with my integrative medicine doctors is that I picked something up then that, that started the cascade that led to that happening. And I do believe fervently that if I was not as healthy as I am, I would have died. Because at forty-seven, you know, the average forty-seven-year-old is not not what I was at that time. You know, I, I was metabolically healthy. I was, you know, not insulin resistant. I was a healthy weight. Um, you know, I really took good care of myself, and so I I believe that intermittent fasting helped spare me what could have otherwise been. A really really terrible outcome, and and the working hypothesis is that it was the parasite that I picked up in Morocco that stayed with me for a while, um, and that's a whole separate funny conversation. I can laugh about it now, but it's it's amazing that we can pick things up in our travels that can really really create a lot of health problems down the route. Well,
0: uh, I mean that then makes me think it triggers SIBO and some mm-hmm. other some other uh, small intestine. Uh, and then fungal overgrowth. I mean, just, it goes on and on and
1: on. It's really, it's really a domino effect. And I I think that you, you take into account the gut microbiome changes that happen for the average person, but also the loss of estradiol, you know, Esther, there's the estrobolone. We have this whole very interesting and absolutely fascinating component to the microbiome. And, and for women, I see so many women in middle middle life that will start developing all these, you know, microbial issues, whether it's candida, whether it's SIBO, whether it's, you know, a parasite, whether it's H. pylori or dysbiosis, and we're just prone to it because we have hormonal fluctuations in the gut microbiome that can make it easier for us And certainly with as healthy as I am, and I was at that time, I'm not the average person. So it it makes it understandable why we are dealing with a population overall that is so metabolically unhealthy
0: because we know now when we look at the uh, gut microbiome of the fat mice and the skinny mice we, we know that their their guts are different so that could have triggered Cynthia for you weight gain inflammation, and then obviously other issues. how do you think you've avoided that and and obviously we're going to talk about your book in just a minute but there's so many other things so many layers to your story um, how do you think you've avoided then because sometimes things go on in our gut that we don't know
1: about right, right. Well, I think it's it's a lot of different things. The lifestyle medicine piece is critically important. I've been gluten, grains, and dairy free for a long time and helped reverse an autoimmune condition. So I think diet. It all starts with foods so yeah. and nutrition is critically important. And what are most people not doing in middle age? They're eating like they're eighteen and they're wondering why they're gaining weight. I don't. I also don't drink alcohol. I don't judge anyone who does. Um, but that just. I just don't it doesn't agree with me. It's just easy. It impacts my sleep. But I think the things that we really talk about that impact the gut microbiome impact, you know, whether or not we turn certain genes on or off have a lot to do with how well we take care of ourselves. So do you get high quality sleep? Yes. Um, do you manage your stress? Absolutely. Do I exercise? And I'm not talking about like CrossFit and orange theory fitness. It is finding balance because when you're 45, 50 and beyond, you cannot exercise like a 20 year old. You just can't. And it's not a criticism, it's just an obstacle. It's been completely my clinical experience as well as my personal experience. And so when you kind of look at how well someone is taking care of themselves, I always say perimenopause is a litmus test for how well you take care of yourself because the women that kind of breeze through this transitional period, you know, five to 10 years preceding menopause, are the ones that take the best care of themselves. And it's not talking about bubble baths and massages, it's really doing the work. You know, I have women all the time that will say, Can't you just write me a prescription that mm-hmm. so I don't have to do all these things? And I was like, No, it's actually, I mean, you have to rip the band-aid off. You just have to do the work. And so I think on a lot of levels, that how well I've I've taken care of myself and certainly, you know, my own transition through perimenopause taught me a lot. And so I think that all of those things um have allowed me to live a pretty good quality life. But I'll be completely transparent with you that. You know, that darn parasite, I had chronic giardia. um, That definitely (sighs) then, after being properly treated for that, I had a leaky gut. And then, you know, you go down that rabbit hole. And I wholeheartedly agree that a lot of things that we do properly, and and obviously I was in a position where taking antibiotics was my only option, uh, you then create another problem. And so then you're down that rabbit hole. So I think it's a journey, it's not a race. And just understanding that each choice that we make, And for me, yes, I chose to take antibiotics knowing that I might take a gut hit was the right thing to do given the symptoms I was experiencing. And so now we'll get back on track.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's why I'm so conservative, not just about antibiotics, but the whole steroid thing. Do you know how many, Mm -hmm. because I'm an intermittent, I'm a health coach with the Institute for Integrated Nutrition New York my certification and how many clients I have that will say, yeah, I I had a little rash. They put me on a steroid. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. They put you on a steroid for a rash or I had a this and it's the same thing. It's like, that's also affecting your gut health. So I I just kind of cringe. So when people like that are conservative, like you and I medically, um, if we say we need to be on an antibiotic, I, I trust that we you know, there are a lot of great things that have happened with the advent of antibiotics. There's just a lot of bad things too, as you know. And you mentioned something I thought was profound, and that is self-care is not a new pair of Jimmy Choo's. It's actually getting sunlight every day, you know, or moving. I I love, that's just a great way. Now I'm going to phrase that. It's people think well i i yeah i i listen to my favorite podcast and i chill out which is great but there're so many other things i've said this in my podcast before and i'm sure you feel the same way we have demonized the sun when it is so valuable for our mental health physical health gut health um cortisol the cord- good cortisol in the morning you know melatonin at night just all the things so Uh, you know, someone said the other day, they said, well, do you think we've been lied to? And I said, well, I don't think it was an overt lie. I just think that we were heading down the wrong path and we didn't ask a lot of questions. And we said, oh, we've got to all stay out of the sun and put all that carcinogenic sunscreen on our faces. So.
1: Well, you know, what's interesting is that um, after my 13 day hospitalization, the only thing I could tolerate was meat. So I went full carnivore for nine months and I missed my vegetables. Let me be clear. But the one thing I found was that when I was eating a higher animal protein diet, I needed less sunscreen. So I would, you know, go out and walk with my dogs every day. And so there, there, it's interesting, this kind of domino effect, like, as you know, more, you do more. I'm not irresponsible in the sun. However, I've come to find that my vitamin D levels Granted, I'm, I'm in a part of the country where we do get four seasons, so there's a part of the year that I'm pretty covered when I'm outside. Yeah. But there's also a part of the year where I'm not, right. And I take full ownership of going out without sunglasses, without sunscreen. I get two long walks with my dog a day. Dogs, uh, during the day, they get great exercise. I do too, and just the health benefits, as you were alluding to, you know, getting sunlight exposure on your retinas, knowing that it helps suppress melatonin, it increases cortisol. I see all these, you know, wonderful people out in the morning that have sunglasses on. I'm like, Like no, 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 really take them off. It makes such a big difference. And you know what? We need to think about sleep. And your eyes get get more used
0: to the sun. The more more exposure I've given my retinas, I don't have to wear sunglasses Mm -hmm. anymore. It's like I've built this up. What is your vitamin D level? Do you think, do you have it now? Do you know?
1: Um, I know it's in the 70s. During winter, I do have to supplement. uh, And I think that's normal for a lot of people. And I also think, you know, given the last several years, uh, I've been very proactive about vitamin D just by virtue of the fact we know it helps with insulin sensitivity and some degree of immune function. And if you look at all the research that's been done, people that have the worst outcomes have been individuals with very low, very subtherapeutic vitamin D levels. I like to see my patients above 60, ideally above 70. And- for some people that requires supplementation and there's no shame in that. I, I think it's it's really important for people to understand there's no shame in needing to supplement to get your vitamin D levels there because you can try to eat all the vitamin D rich food you want. But for some individuals, it's going to require more effort. Now, if you live in Southern California, you live in Florida, maybe your your skin's exposed year round. I think the, the kind of qualifiers, if you live north of Atlanta, that more than likely you you're going to need some supplementation to mm-hmm. stay within therapeutic levels. But for if you live in a more tropical environment, that's great. Um, but for most of us do have to supplement to stay at that therapeutic level.
0: Okay, let's talk about fasting. Now, what mm-hmm. gave you because you know, we I feel like um, the West are hearing more about it. When Dr. Michael Mosley in 2012, with the BBC had, I think he started with maybe the five two diet or whatever i can't remember what even his documentary was or whatever the series was and then um, i started in 2017 and so i've totally immersed myself but when did you come upon the term time restricted feeding or eating or intermittent fasting
1: 2015 20 early 2016 is when it started for me and i always say that finding jason fung's work for me was what gave me the courage to feel comfortable as a clinician, because as a clinician, you know, we're kind of taught to be very research focused, evidence-based. And after I read his book, the complete guide to fasting, Mm -hmm. that was, that was it. It was, I was going to completely jump right in with, with both feet. In fact, I've had conversations with him where I've said, I have to give you credit how grateful I am that, you know, there was another, you know, Western medicine trained provider that was really at the forefront of fasting. And so that's when it started. And and it started with me because I was in perimenopause and just felt like things were starting to spiral and I needed to do something different. And I felt so good within the first couple of days, first week, that it really literally bled into all the work I was doing uh, with patients starting to talk about that. And let's be honest, this is completely contrary to what I trained in. I trained at a big research institution. No one ever talked about fasting as being something therapeutic. In fact, you know, we would have patients that would grumble about having to be NPO or nothing by mouth just overnight. And I couldn't used to always do it. say, they do it, most they? of the patients who are grumbling are the ones that really would benefit from yeah. not eating for eight to 12 yeah. hours in a minimum. So really, I came to it organically and then really started talking about it with anyone that was willing to listen. My husband thought I was nuts. <laughs> I love it. Uh, my friends thought I was nuts. But now, you know, I look at it as it's just a gift and it's not new or novel, despite what, you know, a lot of the writers, you know, want to believe that it's the newest fad and I'm like, heck to the no, it, you know, dates right. back to biblical times. Right. I mean, it's been around a long time and we wouldn't be here as a species if we could not be fat adapted or have this metabolic flexibility. So yeah, 2015, 2016 timeframe is when I started
0: okay with all this talk about fasting i hope it makes some of you think i want to try intermittent fasting well i'm lisa fisher your intermittent fasting coach that's right i started in 2017 started to get the hang of it and realized that i had a commodity people want to know from people who've walked the path that's why you're listening to this episode what's it like to fast? How do you get started? Uh, What are the do's and don'ts, ins and outs? What are some tricks to help you get that success? Guys, I can help you. I have helped hundreds of people in the past year when I started Intermittent Fasting Coaching. I am certified as a health coach from the Institute for Integrative Nutrition New York. This is separate, but that taught me a lot of tricks of the trade in coaching people. Plus, I love to encourage people. I love to lock arms with people and help them find success through intermittent fasting. You can go to my website to find out more or just email me for more information. Fasting at com. And so I've obviously read all of his books. By the time I read that in 2017, I guess I, my, I started with 18 and six window just because my son's the one who told me about it and told me to do. He said, don't eat again until tomorrow at 1230. It was 630. I said, okay. So how did you start? Like, well, I'm trying to think in that book, was there a time frame or any type of schedule he told us?
1: Um, I, I probably started with probably 14 or 15 hours fasted and then would flex between 16 to 18, depending on my day. I mean, I have the, 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 ability to be pretty flexible with my schedule if i were still seeing patients i was lucky if i ever got to eat lunch so for me uh depending on like what my schedule is and and to be honest i'm i'm very transparent about this as well on days i lift heavy i will break my fast earlier because i lean into what my body is telling me if i have a day where you know maybe i'm a slug which doesn't happen often but if i'm a day where i'm less physically active i might fast a little longer and and the beauty of it is The flexibility piece so each one of us can choose you know once we're fat adapted we can then choose what fasting or feeding window works best for us and i that's what i love most about fasting is that it does not have to be rigid and that's a departure from a lot of the dieting rules that a lot of us grew up in you know certainly the the things that i recall patients telling me about or you know programs they were following were very very rigid And rigidity is not something that is sustainable. And that's the differentiators that most people can fast throughout their lifetime, appropriately fast. Uh, There are times when we should not, but definitely there are times when we can really lean into fasting and then times we have to back off.
0: Well, we talked about cortisol earlier. Cortisol has its benefits, but then too much of it, women especially look down and they can't fit in their size, you know, 27 jeans anymore. They're, you know, seven pants that they wore, whatever. Um, so the, I feel like, and this is anecdotal. So I don't know the people who live under those rigid rules are the ones who really start producing all that cortisol. Is Mm -hmm. there a connection between type a or trying to do it? You know, tell me what to eat every day. Tell me how many calories. And they're the ones that are battling cortisol too much cortisol.
1: Well, I mean, I think there's also the understanding that, you know, cortisol, much like insulin, is not a bad hormone, but when it's not properly balanced, it can be problematic. What I see a lot of women dealing with is a cortisol belly. We have 40 times more cortisol receptors on our abdomens. And so when a woman says to me, I have a lot of like belly fat, the first thing I start to think about, you know, is how are you managing your stress? But our body can't be like controlled. So anyone who thinks I have to beat my body into submission, I have to work out harder. I have to drive my cortisol up more. Like the best example I used to give was, you know, and and I keep going back to this in your twenties and thirties, you can run that marathon, you can run for hours and it doesn't impact your body the same way it does in your forties and fifties. And so those kind of like chronic cardio, like I had a bunch of women in my old neighborhood and they looked haggard and it was because their, their way of exercising was to just go run seven to 10 miles every morning. And I always say, we don't want to work out harder. We want to work out smarter as we get older. And so cortisol managing our stress, um, avoiding, uh, inflammatory foods. And I hate to say this because this can be triggering, but things depending on the individual gluten, grains, dairy, sugar, alcohol, uh, can all be problematic. And it's different for each one of us, but I, I pretty consistently gluten and dairy seem to be big ones as well as alcohol and sugar for that matter. Um, but really kind of leaning into, you know, where we are hormonally. Like if, someone stops getting their menstrual cycle and they're fasting, it's a sign that something is off. If your menstrual cycle kind of gets wonky for a cycle or two, that's not as much of a big deal. But I do find many, many women are of this mindset that they have to beat their bodies into submission, that they can control everything. And yes, I do agree for a lot of those super type A wound, very tight women, you know, they're just kind of mentally wound tight and they can't relax that becomes a problem. So I always say you have to find something for yourself to get you out of fight or flight. So we have the autonomic nervous system, and we've got sympathetic and parasympathetic. And most of us are stuck in this fight or flight, I'm being chased by a rabid animal, and our body can't differentiate between being frustrated with a spouse or bad traffic, or, you know, you get on the phone with a customer service rep, and it eats up an hour of your day, and you're irritated your body can't differentiate between that and actual, like I'm being chased and I'm going to get eaten does not differentiate that. So really ensuring that we do things to help our body find balance may not be that you're hundred percent in sympathetic, but it could be that you have to do austro, you know, alternate nostril breathing. Maybe you need to do yoga. Maybe you need to disconnect from technology. Maybe you need to change your diet and you need to go to bed earlier. Some of those things, you can't fix that with a pill. And so we've conditioned our patients on so many levels to expect clinicians to give them a pill to fix what should be able to be fixed by changing something in their lifestyle and making it sustainable. Like I had so many cardiology patients that were younger than me, and I would try to find an angle to encourage them to take better care of themselves. And they were like, Cynthia, just give me the pill. I'm not going to stop smoking, I'm not going to go to bed earlier. I'm not going to change my diet. And it used to just crush me because that would be then be the patient at 35 with five medications who by the time they were 50 would probably be on 20. And that is just the way things have become. And it's much, much easier to create sustainable strategies that you can do for the rest of your life than just keep adding pills. Because I mean, that was part of the impetus for me leaving clinical medicine. I loved and love being a nurse practitioner. I love the work that I did. I hated writing so many scripts because I kept saying we're missing opportunities with our patients. And certainly women in particular, you know, I I kept seeing women over the age of 40 that were struggling with the same symptoms, the same constellation of complaints. And I was like, we are missing opportunities. Now I understand. I didn't at the time, but now I really do. I've heard you
0: say before that, um, I love this, that middle-aged women don't have to gain weight why don't you address yeah. that? You're yeah. thinking behind well, it.
1: Well, I, I think when I hit the wall of perimenopause, so I did that first TED talk on perimenopause and I was so embarrassed, so embarrassed <laughs> because <laughs> really? first of all, how was I? Po- how could I possibly be that old? Like In my mind, like chronologically, <laughs> right. I didn't feel my age, but no one had prepared me. Yeah. No one had talked to me about what was to be expected at that stage of life. Not my mom, not my girlfriends, not my training, not my GYN. No one other than when I went in for an annual exam, my GYN, as I was saying to her, my periods are very heavy. She was like, Oh my God. She was like, okay, so this is how we're going to fix this synthetic hormones an ablation an IUD, or, or if you don't even want to deal with this anymore, we'll do a hysterectomy. And I was like, no, 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 no. And she you know, looked at me and said, you know, maybe this is just the way things are now. And I said, I'm five foot three and gaining 10 pounds makes a big difference yeah, in how I feel about sure. myself. It's not okay. It's not something I'm ever going to uh, brush under the rug and not think is a big, a, big, um, a big problem because I said something's imbalanced in my body. That's why this is happening. And so that really dove me down this rabbit hole of really closely examining why this happens for women in this stage of life. And so it goes back to the lifestyle piece, meal frequency, choices of inflammatory foods, not enough sleep, high quality sleep, not managing your stress, the wrong types of exercise. And that's just a starting point. You know, there's this whole other level of um, gut health and toxin exposure yeah, for sure. as well as other, well, there's so many factors. There's like 10 things I always call weight loss resistance, but it's not benign. You know, we, we need to stop making weight gain, not a big deal that it should just be the way things are. It is a sign of an, imbo- of an imbalance in the body. And we have to be able to look closely at hormones. We need to actually understand what's going on. What happens for a lot of women in perimenopause, as they have fluctuating amounts of estradiol, which is the predominant form of estrogen, we become less insulin sensitive. So that means you could be eating the same exact food. Maybe it's a healthy, healthy macros that you put together, but all of a sudden your carbohydrate tolerance is not what it used to be. I know that's certainly my case. You know, I have a threshold at which I try to stay under. And I always remind people being carbohydrate aware, eating great quality carbohydrates, and that could be squash or sweet potato or root vegetables, as opposed to rice and pasta and bread. And yes, I know those things are all delicious. However, they do not serve us well in making sure women are really leaning into hitting their protein macros. This is a huge problem that I see for so many women that they're afraid to eat more animal based protein. They don't eat sufficient amounts. The other thing that really stinks, but it's a question of if, but not, you know, it's not a question of if it, 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 but it's when sarcopenia, this muscle loss with aging starts to accelerate after the age of 40, we have our, our peak bone and muscle mass in our twenties and thirties. Okay. No one taught me that. <laughs> and then you head into your forties and you're replacing muscle with fat. And we have to think about muscle as the organ of longevity. We have to think about it as a glucose reservoir and it, how important it is oh, for insulin sensitivity. Yeah. So when women don't want to lift weights, and they don't want to hit enough animal base, and they don't want to consume enough protein, that becomes problematic, that impacts metabolic flexibility, that impacts insulin sensitivity. And so again, it's this awareness of ensuring women understand the choices that they're making really do have a big impact. And you know, one other thing that I want to tie into that Ketogenic diets may work well for some women and not for others. And a lot of women see men doing really well, like ketogenic diets, they do really, really well. And some women, it's too much fat, their fat malabsorbed, they don't do well with that much fat. So I always say, let's really think about it as we want to hit our protein macros, because that shuts off our appetite, you know, we hit those satiety cues, um, because there's specific hormonal regulation in the body that will do that. And when women really lean into to animal based protein, as an example, all of a sudden they're full. They're not looking for chips. They're not looking for chocolate. They're able to walk away from the table. They're able to create and maintain muscle mass and they have to lift weights to do that and get high quality sleep. But those are the things that can help women rewrite the narrative for middle age. Like the whole concept of saying to women, oh, you know, you're going to lose your weight, your waist, and you know, you're not going to be able to fit in your clothes. And no, it's not related to HRT. And I remind people that I'm not anti-hormone. I think if, if someone needs to be on hormones, and I, I actually um, have completely kind of rewritten the narrative for myself personally and what I think about HRT, for many, many people, that's like the last missing link that can really get them sleeping better and feeling better. But it should never be a frontline therapy. I think you have to get all the lifestyle stuff dialed okay. in first, and then you yeah. layer that in. And then I see much better success. And I can't tell you how many women end up in programs of mine, and they're suffering They're barebacking their way through menopause or perimenopause because they are terrified of hormones, absolutely positively terrified of hormones. And when we have conversations and I refer them on to people who this has become their life work, I think about Avram Bluming, who he and Carol Travis have done this amazing, amazing book called Estrogen Matters. And I just say, these are these incredible resources, like have the conversation with your healthcare professional, read this, get empowered, understand what happens in the body. And then make a make a decision based on knowledge and not fear. I'm
0: writing that down. So in the show notes, we'll have links to some of the things we talk about. Um, uh, several things I still want to talk to you about. One is, um, let's talk about your weightlifting. Because, you know, Dr. Uh, ben Bickman in his book, Why We Get Sick, which has totally changed my life. Like, everybody needs to have a copy of it. And listen to, um, listen to it on Audible. Go back, you know. And you know, of course, obviously he's a proponent for intermittent fasting, but he's also a proponent for walking ten minutes after each meal because he said it helps the pancreas do its job and for insulin to do its work. But also, he talks about lifting weights. Tell me when you say, because you're five foot three, you don't weigh, you know, eighty pounds or whatever. You probably weigh hundred and ten pounds. I don't. Know. It doesn't matter. You're small framed, is my point. What are you lifting, Cynthia, when you say you're lifting weights, and how many times a week?
1: Well, honestly, I try to go as often as I can. It's usually three or four days a week. And for anyone that's listening, we moved four times in a year. We sold a house, lived in two rentals, and then moved into another house. And so so I got out of my habit of going to the same gym that we loved. And so I probably took six months away from doing heavier lifting, like, you know, doing hip thrusts and, you know, squats and all sorts of things. Now, with that being said, for me, I do legs twice a week because it's one of the largest muscle groups. I do back once a week, um, arms and chest are important. Obviously you want to be balanced, but I think it's, it's not just the, the lifting and, and progressive lifting, meaning you don't go in and do the same exercise every day for four weeks. You want to be pushing every week. Like I have a, I have a, an app in my phone. And so I know exactly what I lifted the week before, and I'm trying to push it by five pounds every time I go. So that's progressive overload. But it's also the acknowledgement that um, I, I think very, I, I guess, because of my, my background in cardiology, like oftentimes I had patients in their fifties and sixties who acted like they were a hundred because they lost so much muscle mass. They would be in the hospital. They could barely get off the commode, like the bedside commode because they lost so much muscle mass. And so in the back of my head, I, I remind myself of the fact that, you know, muscle is locomotion, muscle is movement, muscle is insulin sensitive tissue. And so I'm thinking about those things that I want to be very thoughtful about when I'm lifting, I'm really thinking about developing that muscle, leaning that muscle out, making sure that I'm doing it thoughtfully, I'm doing it slowly. And so that for me is, is super important. And and my family knows that's, that's my hour in the gym. I oftentimes am listening to a book, um, or I'm listening to a podcast. So I always call it learn and burn. But I would say at a minimum two to three days a week, women should be in the gym lifting without question. And then I think also just the concept of movement, meaning, uh, you know, I walk my dogs in the morning, I walk my dogs in the evening, I aim for 10,000 steps a day. And for anyone who's listening saying, Oh, my God, how do you do that? Well, the joke is I try to aim for four miles by midday. That's my goal. But it's important for us to move our bodies throughout the day. So if I have a day where I'm doing a lot of podcasting, or if I'm doing a lot of sitting, I mean, I'll, you know, our our laundry room is on the second floor. So I'm up, down. I'm, even if it's every hour, I set my alarm so that I just I walk to the mailbox, I take my dogs for a quick walk. I'm just trying to make sure that I'm active throughout the day. But the the strength training is a non-negotiable. Um, I have a dear friend from childhood who I love, who I've watched develop diabetes. And I finally was like, time out. We need to get a hold of this. And uh, you know, she called me recently. I was giving her all like the best coaching advice I give my patients. And I said, how are we doing with strength training and walking? And she was like, I hate strength training and I hate you for recommending it. And I'm only doing body weight exercises. And I said, listen, if you hate it that much, it means you're doing good things. Like yeah. the things I don't want to do are the things I need to do. Like yeah. I don't love yoga, but I need to do yoga. Yeah. And I said, you know, remember when years and years and years ago when we were in college and whether it was, and this is a terrible analogy, forgive me. There were, you know, shots we didn't like doing, but we would sometimes just do them." <laughs> And so yes. I'm not making the, that's not a good <laughs> comparison, but, you know, get into the habit of yeah. doing things that initially you don't really love and kind of layer it in. So movement, lifting weights, super important. You know, I think flexibility work is super important as we're getting older. So that yoga that I was referring to that I got out of the habit of doing uh, over the last two years. I started my yoga practice back again. And I do, you know, occasionally I do Pilates. I mean, I'm always finding because for me, I need to do different things. I'm kind of like I get bored, like my dogs get bored. If I we do the same because tricks with them all the time.
0: Getting a rut, I like don't you
1: think?
0: That are, Same thing with my fasting schedule. You know, I have today's Monday. So I try to do a 24 hour fast, But because on weekends, I have, I eat probably in a six hour window. I mean, it's just, I, I just mm-hmm. mix things up. Just I don't know, just because I can
1: um, variety is important. I, I jokingly always say monogamy is good. He, Food monogamy, fasting monogamy, <laughs> not good. We want to change things up and our bodies need that. Like it's actually, yeah. you know, just like I was saying, my dogs don't want to do the same walk every day. They don't want to do use the same toys every day. You know, we as, yeah. as individuals need to challenge our bodies. Yeah,
0: for sure. Uh, one more thing, just looking at you, your light eyes, small frame, um, the rest of the world would worry about you getting uh, osteoporosis. I'm not worried because your vitamin D's good and all that. So because I'm not gonna take the medicine for sure, you know. So what can you do to encourage women of advancing age then to keep those bones strong? One would be lifting the heavy weights, I would think?
1: Yeah, you got to lift heavy weights, you need to walk. Um, you, you want that kind of um, you know stress on the bones. And then the other thing like I wish I had known, was that we really hit that peak bone and muscle mass in our 20s and 30s. So I would have been like really, really ratcheting in weight training at a younger age. I really didn't start lifting until I was in my 30s, and I probably would have started earlier. The other thing is if anyone has been told they're osteopenic, it's complete garbage. You you can't compare the bone strength of a 50-year-old woman to a 25-year-old and think they're going to be the same in fact, that was like, I had all this fear mongering going on. Like my grandmother was osteoporotic and I'm osteopenic. Well, I'm also a thin Caucasian woman. So I'm already Mm. on that, you know, that outlier, Mm. but it was interesting when I was interviewing, um, Dr. Blumming. you know, he said that is a diet that's not even a diagnosis that is actually just, you know, as they've, they've started like looking at these DEXA scans and they've started looking at like how can we capitalize uh, the pharmaceutical agent companies on weakened bones? How can we fearmonger women into using these toxic bisphosphates drugs, which don't create strong bone, they actually create weak bone. And there's a whole other constellation right. of um, problems with this class of drugs. And so, you know, I think for myself, and I, I certainly have advocated for myself because the osteopenia thing follows me everywhere I go. And I just say all the time, like, I genuinely do everything I can to ensure my bones stay as strong as possible. And that is another yet another reason to continue lifting. And, you know, there's no shame because we know there's also um there's also an interrelationship between progesterone and testosterone and estradiol and bone formation and bone strength. And so I think it's important for people to understand that if they choose to go on hormone replacement therapy. That is that is another layer that can help with that bone um strength and bone tenacity but it, it should not be a front line right. it should not be a frontline agent I, I think that's an important like there's no shame in doing that i think i have had some women reach out to me on social media because they're like i feel like i'm cheating and i'm like on um, what and they'll say well i started testosterone or i started estradiol and testosterone i started progesterone and i'm like let me explain something to you. I take progesterone because it helps with my sleep. Like that's a non-negotiable, like my sleep is precious. Now, whether or not I'm in a position where, you know, you know, at some point I decide to do testosterone or estradiol, that's totally okay. And I don't want anyone to get the message that somehow that's a negative thing.
0: You have so much information, such a wealth of information, Cynthia. Tell me about your book then. It's it's 45 days you're looking at in it to start intermittent fasting. So I like that. And tell me how you got the science of that.
1: Well, I think the, the ironic thing is that when that talk went viral, we had, I mean, seemingly overnight, my business blew up and my team and I were trying to create in response to people wanting me to coach them with intermittent fasting, I was like, okay, let's throw something together. And and in my typical kind of creative fashion, it was like, let's try 30 days, let's try 60 days. And so 45 days was the sweet spot. And so the book talks a little bit about my story, my perimenopause journey. Uh, It talks about, you know, the science, it talks about hormones, which are obviously so critically important. And then we dive into the 45 days where I lay out a foundation of how to be successful with fasting and, you know, really speaking to all women, like women in their peak fertile years, women in perimenopause, women in menopause, because let's be clear, there's a lot of fear mongering about fertile women. There's a ton of fear mongering about perimenopause and menopause. And I just think that the the research has really focused on lab animals And it's focused on obese menopausal women and maybe some PCOS patients, not enough on this broad because, you know, the researchers don't want to focus in on where someone is in their follicular cycle or their luteal phase. They they don't want to focus on that. And so it's just, it's another variable they have to account for. So my hope is that this book will go on to encourage women to learn more about their bodies and to be able to fast successfully. Like who should be fasting, who should not be fasting? What's a clean fast? you know, how do we look at um, nutrition, like there are 50 recipes in the book with the meal plans. And I fought fervently and very hard for an animal focused animal centric meal plan, there are vegetarian recipes. And there are certainly people, you know, they can swap out proteins if they would like to, but it reinforces why protein is the most important, most satiating macronutrient that we can consume as women. And then really identifying signs that fasting is not working for you. Like I say all the time, the lifestyle piece is critically important. And bioindividuality is really important. That's not something that I learned uh, in my training. That's something that I learned after I left clinical medicine, the recognition that if you take 10 women that are of the same age, they may all need to fast a little differently. And that is okay. Like we, unfortunately, we as a society have kind of put people in buckets, like you're this age, this should work for you. And then Women would come to me and they would say, This doesn't work for me. And so we would, you know, do we have to tweak your macros? Do you need to sleep more? Do you need to back off on exercise? You know, is your gut a disaster? And that's why you're struggling with weight loss resistance. And so my hope and my intention is that this book will be able to serve women's needs in a beautiful way. It'll start conversations. Uh, What I love best is that the feedback from healthcare professionals has really been amazingly supportive. I've had Physicians tell me I learned a ton. Like I had one integrated medicine doctor was like, how did you learn so much about magnesium? And I said, I worked in cardiology for 16 years. You you better believe I was savvy with electrolytes. I had to be. So, you know, my hope is that it's a book for, for the lay public. It's a book for clinicians. It's a book to start a conversation. It's to shift the narrative, to talk about fasting openly and not in a way that, um, you know, I, I think as we have a more metabolically unhealthy population, it has become a public health threat. And so, on a lot of levels, this isn't a book that you, you can kind of put away and, and not think about. This should really be starting conversations, changing narratives, um, working for advocacy, which I think is another piece. I think a lot of women, especially women north of 40, feel invisible they feel invalidated, they feel ignored. These are words that women use with me almost every day. And so I want them to have a voice. But again, this book is for all women, but especially devoted to the women who feel stuck and invisible because I definitely felt that way when I started into perimenopause. And I don't want anyone to make the mistakes that I did. I want everyone to be able to make that transition. Women spend two-thirds of their lifetime um, you know, 60, 40% of their lifetime in, in menopause, like, why would we not want to thrive? It is not a time to go out and be ignored, go out to pasture and no longer be relevant. It's quite the contrary.
0: I feel great. I feel better than I ever have. I mean, just with fasting and the sunlight and all that, what is your sweet spot every day? If, if you do a daily eating window?
1: Um, I would probably say like, I tend to do better eating earlier. So it might be 10 to five, 10 to four, depends on my day. That's the one thing about the past two years that is that it really validated the whole chronobiology eating when it's light out, not eating when it's dark out my body. I mean, I have an aura ring, so I track as yeah. a gigantic data geek. I track everything. So if I eat at seven o'clock at night, my data is totally thrown off for sleep. So I do much better eating at four or five o'clock. I sit with my family when they eat dinner, you right. know, they're not ignored, right. but they understand that this is just what works best for my body. And so I, I really lean into that. I think for a lot of years, I felt like I do apologize because I didn't like eating late. Um, But now I can trend data that actually demonstrates, you know, my heart rates elevated my HRV, my heart rate variability is not the same, my deep sleep is not the same. So I definitely do better, like maybe 10 o'clock. I mean, some days, you know, I lifted this morning, I broke my fast at 930. And I had already had, you know, a 16 hour fast. And I don't I just don't think there's any shame. in
0: do you lift in the fasted or the fed state then?
1: I always lift fasted yeah. because I work out in the morning. I mean, for me I'm I'm not motivated to work out in the afternoon and the later in the day, I decide I'm going to work out, the less likely I am to actually do it. Right. So I'm a mo- I'm a morning worker outer. and I've always worked out fasted except for the years when I bought into that nonsense is I had to drink a protein shake going to the gym and a protein shake coming back and I'm like I never felt good. I always felt like I had a, you know, like a lead weight in my stomach. So, this definitely is is aligned. And I I think for people that are listening, because I get this question a lot, you know, what do you think about working out fast? And I said, I think it depends on the person. If you work out at seven o'clock in the morning and you feel great, wonderful. If you get up at seven o'clock in the morning, you're starving, put something, you know, have like some berries and maybe some rolled up turkey. I mean, if that's going to, you know, get you through a workout. But I don't think anyone should force themselves to eat if they're not hungry. But I also think that there's no shame in admitting, you know, on the days I work out heavy, I really have to eat something small and there's no shame in that whatsoever.
0: Absolutely. There's a bio-individuality. The one thing I think we can take away from all this, A, you're brilliant. I love everything you've said. Thank you. There are five more hours I want to talk to you about, uh, CGMs, uh, Metformin, all that. So that's another conversation. Uh, but also everything we've talked about, it's follow the money, follow the money. The things that you've pushed back on are the same things I've pushed back on, whether it's taking out my parts. No, I want to keep my parts and you don't get the money or it's the protein, the, the pre-workout shakes and the post-workout shake, follow the money, follow the money on all of it. Just, just, uh, I I'm shaking my head. People are listening going, what is she doing? I'm shaking my head. So,
1: <laughs> Thank you but for I think it, it's one senseful. of those things where um you know for full transparency my trainer always wants me to take essential amino acids and so we've tried a bunch of different ones and I can't stand the taste I told her I said I have to hold my nose and drink them and th- there's not even any junk in the they're like the Keon which is Ben Greenfield's products yeah. they're not even bad products they're they've got fairly clean ingredients and I jokingly tell her I'm like I cannot because it's the it, there's something about the taste that just doesn't resonate and she finally gave up and just said, don't drink them. You know, we'll we'll figure out something else that you can do around your workouts. But I I agree that you know we each have to determine for ourselves what makes the most sense. Right. But whatever we're choosing to do, we want it to be sustainable. And if it's sustainable, then it doesn't feel like we are living in a in a concept of lack. Like that is that is what's wrong about the diet industry is that you can't do this specific diet, this really restrictive diet. And then not expect your body to just go, I can't do this anymore. I can't sustain it. So we want sustainable strategies, sustainable things are things we can do throughout our lifetime.
0: Okay. The book comes out today. What's the full title of it?
1: Intermittent Fasting Transformation, IF45.
0: I love it. Everybody go get a copy. I'm getting mine after, I mean, the day this drops, I'm getting a book. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Lisa Fisher Said Podcast. Be sure to hit subscribe and download all the episodes and leave a review, won't you? The Lisa Fisher Said Podcast is produced by ClantonCreative.com.